Went to the store last night. Didn't want to go to the store on the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Went to the store last night. I caught Rhonda. She didn't know I was there. I caught Rhonda talking to the guy at Crest saying, do these turkeys get any bigger? He said, no, ma'am, they're dead. Uh, you know, one or the other of them didn't understand the question. Now, let's go, we're going to spend one more time in Ezekiel. So go with me back to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. Next week, uh, I'm going to bridge. Uh, next week is the first Sunday in Advent, and I've, I've been looking so forward to this. And uh, we've been doing all this predictive literature about a new day coming. We're going to talk about a new inheritance today. And uh, this hope for the future. Well, next week, we'll kind of bridge the gap between um, the four Sundays that we get to spend together in uh, December, talking about, um, well, actually, not, not four Sundays completely in, in December, but we'll have four Sundays in Advent to talk about uh, the Lord Jesus. So we'll be in Isaiah 52 next week, if you'd like to read ahead. Uh, it's kind of where we'll be. Now, I find it intriguing that no matter what kind of a family you belong to, often serious issues arise when the state has to be divided among children. I find this is true even when the deceased has left a fairly detailed will. I was sitting, I have, in my family, I have two cousins on my mom's side. My mom had two sisters each of which had only, all three of which only had one child. So uh, myself and my two cousins, who are just older than me and, and are ladies, um, we'll get together for lunch occasionally and uh, kind of uh, review the lives of our moms who were uh, public school teachers, Sally, for a long, long time, all three of them. And uh, um, we'll, talk, we'll talk about uh, things that we still have that we're dealing with. And we all have kind of come to the determination that being an only child when you're settling a will is a little easier than when there's three or five or 12. Now today we're going to talk about a will that has to be um, adjudicated when there's 12 um, um, children and uh, some of the things that are going to go in, in, into that. But um, interestingly, the sharing of unearned inherited wealth is often the furthest thing from anybody's mind. Now, what we've been dealing with is ancient Judah was exiled from her land in the 6th century B.C. in about 587. God's people had lost their inheritance due to their national idolatry and other things that they were involved in. So Ezekiel is offering hope to an exiled people through a divine vision of an inheritance renewed and restored. Now, it was an unearned inheritance, and so he says, and this is going to probably get me in a little trouble today because it's just where we are, and it's interesting in the, in the context of national and international politics, but this inheritance is to be shared with the foreigners or strangers that are living among them. Now, we're, we've got to go there today, so we'll go there just a little bit. All right, now, um, what Ezekiel's dealing with here is the promise of restoration of the land. Remember, they're in Babylon, but they're coming back. And he's going to deal a little bit here with the uh, restoration of the land 
and a, um, in, in this vision that we've been looking at for the last several weeks that includes, if you remember, um, um, the building of a new temple, but it's different from what they think it's going to be. So um, let, let's deal with that just a little bit. Now, um, let's read, Bob, if you'll start us, read verse 13 and 14, if you would, from Ezekiel 47. Okay, now, I want to hand out a couple other verses that we're going to read here. Uh, uh, would somebody go to Isaiah 10 and read 20 through 22? Thank you, John. And then Jeremiah 23, 3. Thanks, Cindy. We'll get there in just a minute. Somebody else, if you would, please get Exodus 6, 8. Thank you, Louise. Okay, now, at this time in history, now they're, they're in Babylon, okay, okay, um, they're, they're, it's being promised they're coming back. Wouldn't it seem to you, as it seems to me, and probably seem to them, that resettlement is an unlikely happening? That coming back and taking over where they left off is pretty unlikely. Uh, you might even say uh, resettlement at this point in history is impossible. But God is going to accomplish this in one way or another. Now, let's talk a little bit about... Um, uh, the, the, the original patriation of the land in the book of um, Joshua and Judges. Twelve tribes of Israel. Okay. Um, now, it's interesting because the division as they come back is still going to deal with twelve tribes. But you remember there's, there's a mathematical problem with that because um, Levi doesn't get an inheritance, or at least their own land. Remember, they're the priestly tribe. Uh, so, um, but there's still 12 parcels of land that are divided. How do we get from 11 guys to 12? Do you remember? There you go. Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, get a full inheritance. So we'll, they'll call them half-tribes, but they get a full apportionment. Now, they did in the book of, of Joshua, Judges, and they're going to get a full apportionment here. Now, can you name all 12? Let me see if I can. You ready? We, we've already talked about Levi and you know about Judah because that's where Jerusalem is. We've talked about Ephraim and Manasseh. Then there are the Bears and the Cowboys and the Yankees <laughs> and Merrill Lynch and Pierce and Fenner and Smith. Anyway, there's a bunch of names in there, right? Okay, 12 of them. And they're going to talk about repatriating the land. Now, how is God going to once again shove the people out. How is God once again with all these people almost assimilated up in Babylon? How is he going to accomplish this? There's a new idea that he begins here to talk about and it will carry on until our day. Let's look at a few verses that, that talk about this idea. Um, somebody got, uh, well, quickly, go back with me to 3411. I didn't hand that one out because I thought we'd all go there. Just go back three or four pages. Chapter 34, 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and seek them out. That should be kind of sweet to you. 
God says, I myself will look for my sheep and I'll find them. He's not worried about finding them at all. You ever had somebody in your family or in your life that you felt like was lost? Isn't it wonderful to know that the Lord knows they've never been lost from Him? I love this thought that even though there are um, hundreds of thousands of them, He'll find them. Okay? Let's let's go on to another. There's a a continued idea that he's dealing with here. Isaiah 10, verse 20 through 22. John, is that you? If I counted correctly, as John was reading, the word remnant was used three times. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Cindy, would you read about that thought also from Jeremiah 23? There's going to be a group of them who's going to return. No, they won't be as numerous as when they were taken into exile. But there will be a remnant from among my people, he says. Now, what you and I've got to recognize is that this regathering uh, after the exile is also symbolic for our day. And I'm not talking about the political situation that existed in 1947, I'm not really talking about that either. I'm talking about the church. I think Ezekiel, through the mind of the Holy Spirit, sees a day coming when the remnant will occupy a promised land. You and I are kind of in it. And I'm not talking about Oklahoma. Although I love Oklahoma. Let's continue to talk about this. How's he going to accomplish this? He's going to regather a remnant that will return. Now, in verse 14, there's a surprise here that takes place. Because uh, when they come back, according to him, equal shares of the land will be given. The, pro- uh, the people who went into exile have lost everything. And now they're promised, they are promised a new inheritance in the land. It's not going to be apportioned as before. Uh, there were two systems that were used for apportioning the land before. One of them had to do with the size of the tribe, okay, the number of people. But frankly, the other thing that was used, the other system that was used to apportion the land was literally the casting of lots. What are we talking about? We're rolling the dice. Okay, Who gets this one? Well, here we go. And, and the, that tribe hopes it comes up sevens, right? So, no longer is that going to be used. The, the Lord is going to apportion this land according uh, to kind of equal um, parcels of land for the 12 tribes. Now, let, I want to go on to verse 15. 
and we're going to talk about the boundaries. I'm going to read this myself because there's some of it I frankly kind of want to skip over and uh, others of it that I wouldn't make anybody read. So here we go. We're going to start with verse 15. We're going to start making boundaries now of this new land. Boundaries, this shall be the boundary of the land. We're going to start on the north. On the north side from the great sea by the way of Hethlon to the interest of Zadad. All right, now... Boundary descriptions are going to begin with the north, and they're going to work clockwise, north, east, south, and west. A few years back, not where I'm living now, but where I lived a couple of houses ago, I uh, had a fence company come out and build a fence. And my really nice neighbor came to me as soon as the fence was finished. He says, I think your fence is on my land. (laughs) And I said to him, I don't think so. And he said, I think so. And I said, I don't think so. And he said, I think so. And I said, I don't think, okay. Until he turned his sprinkler system on and his, his sprinkler was on my side of the fence. Yeah. So I figured, well, something's wrong. So I hired, I hired um, involved a, uh, a surveying company to come out and check it out. And uh, sure enough, the neighbor was right. I wrote him, by the way, you got to know, I wrote him a really apologetic letter. We moved the fence. We did that whole thing. And we were fine. We were fine all the way through it. He was such a sweet, he handled it so sweetly through the whole thing. But isn't it interesting that the deed to the parcel of land that you own lists the state and the county and the township, a fractional range, the section, a definite point located in the subdivision. Property lines are measured in feet and directions are given in degrees and minutes. All that's depicted on a plat map which, by the way, my fence guy had not consulted, I guess. Now, I don't think it could be described with a whole lot more precision. But it's not always been that way. On the American frontier, it was common for properties to be recorded beginning at the willow tree on the north bank of the Cedar Creek, go west 239 feet to an oak tree, then north 356 feet to a big stone, you know. Well, what started to happen is unscrupulous people would cut down the trees or move the rocks to change the boundaries. Well, uh, in 1785, Congress passed the Land Ordinance Act of 1785, which established official surveyors and uh, kind of ended that practice. But it was really common in the Old Testament for this to happen. Now, what I want you to know is that we're talking a little bit about boundaries here. But even though the people had an evil tendency to try to move or remove a physical boundary or, frankly, a spiritual boundary, the Lord here is promising that I'm going to establish some boundaries and certainly does it in the New Testament era. He redraws the boundaries. And when he establishes those, he establishes those for eternity, a boundary that's not only immovable, but uncrossable. In the um, 16th chapter of Luke, we read the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story that Jesus tells? And for an eternity, there's a boundary that's been set. The rich man wanted to cross it so that he could warn his brothers. You remember that story? Do you remember the Lord's answer? Can't do it. What I've got to know is that when I walk away from this life, I want to be on the right side of that boundary. 
How about you? I want to live my life in such a way. I want to order my life in such a way. I want to make decisions now that will affect what side of that boundary I'm on in the future. Now, God is talking here about some physical boundaries, but, the, but it has kind of a spiritual meaning to it. Now, if, I'm going to read from verse 16 and 17. Go with me there. All right? Um, Hamath, Berathah, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, Hazar Hadakon, which is by the border of Haran, the boundary shall extend from the sea to Hazar Enan at the border of Damascus, and on the north toward the north, toward the north is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. The north border is going to be kind of a little bit vague. You can put that in here. There's no natural boundaries here. Basically, if I'm looking at today's map, it's going to go northwest from the sea, from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, on northwest of Damascus to northeast of Damascus to a certain point. Now note this. If you go to measure that or look at it on the map, you'll realize that these boundaries that are being set are much farther north than the old boundary that was set in Israel that are, is constantly talked about. If, if, um, if they're wanting to say from sea to signing sea in, uh, in ancient Israel, they'll say from Dan to Beersheba. Well, Dan is further south than what is this talking about. It's kind of interesting here that the boundaries are being expanded, at least according to what the, the Lord is saying here. All right? Now let's move clockwise around to the east. Look at verse 18. The east side from between Haran, Damascus, Gilead, and the land of Israel shall be the Jordan. From the north border to the eastern sea you shall measure. This is the east side. A little easier. Uh, although we're not sure exactly where it starts, but the idea is on the east side, the boundary will be the Jordan River leading down to the Dead Sea. Okay, now if, you're look, if you want to look at the back of your Bible or whatever, at a map that's there, you can kind of see where that is. It's going to be several miles um, east of the Mediterranean Sea going parallel with the, the Mediterranean border in Palestine. The Jordan River kind of trickles down into the Dead Sea. That will be much of the eastern boundary. It's a little more, uh, a little more um, uh, easy to find here. But I want you to catch this. What's missing if that is the eastern border from what you know of Old Testament history? There is no talk, and we'll see it when the land is apportioned, there is no talk of a Transjordanian settlement at all. If you remember, in Joshua's day, there were two and a half tribes. Okay, Reuben and Gad and, um, and the half tribe of Manasseh who settled before they ever crossed the Jordan. And Joshua said, okay, it's cool, you can do that. But you've got to go help us fight the wars and then you can come back. Remember that deal? Okay, so those, that property will no longer be um, a part of the nation. So the Transjordanian area is kind of out of the picture. The southern boundary, verse 19, sounds like this. The south side toward the south shall extend from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribath Kadesh to the brook of Egypt and to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. Now, the idea here, uh, the southern boundary is kind of a natural one. 
Uh, you can read it. I put a couple of places where you can uh, read about it. Today, this area is called Wadi El Arish. Uh, today, it is a, uh, a river or river area that divides like the land of Canaan from the ancient days to modern day Egypt. And lots of tributaries of this, this river in through there. That's kind of a natural boundary to the south. The western boundary is real clear. What is it? The Mediterranean Sea. Can't go much further west than that from where they are. Um, so, um, the Mediterranean Sea. So the western boundary is really clear. The same as it originally was. Now, we, if you notice here, as he's described it, we've moved from really unclear up in the north and northeast, uh, northwest, I'm sorry, on around to, it gets a little more clear as we go around, but there's kind of boundaries that are marked here. We moved from kind of an uncertain border to a, to a certain border. Now, let's read on, go down to verse 21. Somebody read 21 down through 23. Aren't you glad I didn't ask you to read all those big names? I'm not sure how well I did them, but you know. Somebody read 21, 22, and 23. Okay, now we've got to deal with this. They're all going to get kind of equal apportionments. Um, but the settlements, as we get into it, seem here to favor um, certain tribes more than others. Now, um, um, there will be seven tribes that will settle north of the strip that's reserved for Jerusalem, the holy city and the sanctuary of God there, and then there will be uh, uh, space for five tribes south of it. The tribal arrangements seem to place the more favored tribes close to Jerusalem and working out from there. Now, who do you suppose would have been the favored tribes? Judah certainly fits, that's the center of it all, but from there, who would be more favored? I'm sorry? The Levites now are going to be apportioned all through there. Remember, they don't get their own land. There's a portion of their cities within each tribe for the Levites. But you've got to think all the way back, got to think all the way back to, um, to um, Israel. Think all the way back to Jacob. And remember, how many wives did he have that we know of? Four. Did he have a favorite? Who was it? Rachel. Guess whose kids get to camp around Judah? The Joseph's kids and Benjamin. Okay? Because those were Rachel's kids. Isn't it interesting that this has continued, this kind of favoritism, nepotism has continued for centuries here. And it's interesting that it's even kind of predicted this way. It's just kind of, kind of the way it's going to be. Um, I, I find that interesting. Um, Meanwhile, Bilhah and Zilpah, you know, who were the, uh, the, the uh, servants of, the two, of, of Rachel and Leah, you know, they're way out on the edge. So um, that's just kind of interesting. I, I find it interesting. Now, 
Here's where we're going to get to, and here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Look at verse 22 again. You'll divide it for a, by lot for an inheritance among yourselves, and among the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And the tribe in which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Now let me fill in your blanks, and before you start throwing tomatoes at me, let me see if I can explain this, all right? Okay, the description of this arrangement is what I would call pure grace, pure compassion. And the situation that's set up here is that uh, the foreigners living among them will be included in the apportionment of the land. Will they, get, will they get a state of their own? No. But they will get cities, sorry, land within the places where they settle. Okay? Now, I got to thinking about this, and I've read the papers this week too. I've listened to talk radio this week too, okay? But the Lord is doing kind of a work in my heart on this thing. And just stick with me. You know, I'm, I'm not going to convince anybody probably, but stick with me here. Based on the scriptures here. This is a principle um, from the Old Testament. I, I began to realize or begin to think about here um, that these people had lost everything. And I recognize that you and I too, at least most of us, were all foreigners once as well. I think about uh, the pilgrims. Um, in the first couple of years, they made, uh, according to one record, made seven times more graves than homes they built. That was an arduous, hard time. When they gathered for, thank, for that first Thanksgiving, they literally were just glad to have survived. But they were aliens here. And so are we. I, I've just got to let this affect me in some way. Um, uh, no Americans have ever been more, I read this this week, no Americans have ever been more impoverished than those who nevertheless set aside, set aside a day of thanksgiving. Those who came here, uh, who were ministered unto by those who really were here to start with. And, and the Lord seems to be advocating here uh, in the apportionment of the land that same kind of compassion as they go back home to a land that they once patriated, now they're going to find lots of people there that are to them foreign. He's going to remind them, you remember in Babylon, you guys are, are, are squatters there. Okay? I, I've just kind of got to deal with this a little bit. What is the attitude supposed to be and, and I'm, I, I kind of get it. Um, I realize that, that uh, we have this huge issue. How many million people? Five million people? Is that what I read this week? That, kind of, that are kind of in this boat? Um, but my understanding is the issue is not 
US is, the U.S. is alone. And I've got to tell you, these days, my attitude on this is framed by, a lot, by my own experience. Is it yours? I, I uh, have a dear friend. Uh, we've been friends for about three years. And uh, uh, his name is Francisco. He sometimes go by, goes by Pancho. At least that's what it says on his business card. And uh, I met him out in the middle of my street one day. And uh, Francisco um, is very hardworking. Uh, he is um, incredibly industrious. And he has the sweetest little family, all of whom I've, whom I've now met. And he helps me do jobs when my back won't let, it, let me do them. Um, he is very good to me. Can I say that? He's very good to me. I think he loves me because I think he knows that I love him. As I read the paper this week and saw the pictures of those who were avoiding deportation and they were in tears, I began to think about, and, and Francisco's legal here, but I began to think about how I would hate it if he would call me on my cell phone someday and say, hey, they're sending me back to Mexico. He's had two children in the U.S. It's just, it's not that clear cut of an issue. And I don't, want you to, I don't want to talk politics on this, but it's just not that clear cut of an issue. And as I'm dealing with the Old Testament, I was forced to deal with my attitude about this. Here's what the Bible says. Treat the foreigner, treat the foreigner with care. Literally, the Bible says, protect them. I want you to go with me to Romans 15. We're going to read one more verse, and then we'll go. Romans 15. You know, Paul had to deal with it. He was a Roman citizen uh, and a Jew, so he was kind of included everywhere he went, right? But Peter was a different kind of guy, you remember? In Acts 10, he had to kind of come to terms with his own attitude about foreign people. Gentiles in particular. Uh, it wasn't until the Lord came to him and dropped a bunch of animals in a sheet that, uh, that Peter kind of came to terms with it. Here's what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 7. Follow me. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, here's, here's what I'm going to say about this. I know that this is an issue fraught with all kinds of um, political, economic, uh, other kinds of issues. But I really believe that how we treat those, um, anyone who is different in various ways from me, speaks to the quality of my Christian faith. I needed a new beginning one day. There are those right here who need a new beginning today. Uh, I've just kind of kind of come to terms with that. I love what God is saying to the Israelites. When you go back, treat the foreigner with dignity. Treat the foreigner, he says. Protect them. He's, he literally says protect them. I find that really intriguing. Now, I don't know what your attitude is going to be on this. But I do know this, we've got to kind of come to terms with what we believe about those who are different from us. 
Now, next week, I told you we're going to go to Isaiah 52, and uh, we're going to deal a little bit with the coming Messiah and his, what that has to say about tearing down the barriers, the boundaries of exclusiveness. Um, I, let me say one thing, and then I want to read you a poem that Joe wrote this week. Um, actually, wrote it this morning. 2.59 a.m. What are you doing at, up at 3? I was, I was up then, too, but I wasn't writing poetry. Um, I was actually studying, but uh, um, if you're in town next week, next weekend, take an hour and come to Sunday school and church. Take a couple hours and come to Sunday school and church. I'd love to see you here. Uh, we'll all kind of burp ex- together, okay? We'll, we'll all, you know, experience the tryptophan coma together, okay? It's all right. Um, Marty would much rather you fall asleep in church than not show up at all, okay? I think. I, I think I can, I can say that. Did you notice how, how fun he was last week based on all the snow and, and all the stuff? Here's Joe's Thanksgiving poem for this year. This is good. A Thanksgiving list. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for wiping the tears from my face. I thank you for the storms you've brought me through. I thank you, God, for knowing you. I thank you for the soldiers who died to make us free. I thank you, Lord, for hearing as I pray. I thank you for the friends I've met along the way. Lord, I thank you for giving your life on that tree. And I thank you for giving your new life to me. On this Thanksgiving day, I urge you to make a list of your own of all the things you see as God gifts. That's, that's your uh, admonishment to us. And uh, maybe even more than just the, okay, everybody say one thing they're thankful for before, you know, you dive into the mashed potatoes. Um, I thank you for giving your new life to me on this Thanksgiving day. You know what? I'm really thankful for you. God bless you. Joe, that was really good. Thanks for providing that today. All right, I hope I see you next week. Thank you.